Lord, you are the ruler of all. You have shown us over and over and over again in your word and in our lives how we can trust you. Lord, you are God who has always come through in the past, so we know that you will always come through in the future. God, you are trustworthy, so we pray, Lord, that as we look at this word today, that you will help us to trust you, help us to wait on you, uh, knowing that you are good and that you have our good in mind and that you are working out all things for our good. Father, help us to see Jesus in this the beauty of Christ and what he's done for us and the promises that he has secured for us. So give us hearts or minds to understand and hearts to obey your perfect word. In Jesus' name, amen. We're last week, Charlie preached a great sermon to us about David still in the wilderness, still running from Saul. Uh, and at the last minute, when we ended last week, David was miraculously saved right at the last minute when it was over. There was no way he was going to get out of the trap that Saul had set for him. And at the last minute, God came through, pulled Saul out, saved David. David had somewhat of a rest as Saul went to fight the Philistines. But now Saul is back and he's more determined than ever to kill David. So let's see what happens next. Would you please... Stand as we, uh, out of respect for the reading of God's word from 1 Samuel 24. Now, when Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. And then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goats' rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And when the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. And then David arose, and he stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterwards, David's heart was struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. So afterwards David arose also and went out of the cave and called after Saul and said, My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And then David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, although you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? 
after a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord, therefore, be judge and give sentence between me and you, and see to it, and plead my case and my cause, and deliver me from your hand. And as soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son, David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, You are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt well with me, and that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? So the Lord rewards you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul, and then Saul went home. But David and his men went up to the stronghold. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. One of my, one of my least favorite things in all the world to do is wait. <laughs> if I know there's going to be a line, if I know we're going to have to be sitting out in the hot sun for something, no matter how great it may be, I'd almost rather not. Disneyland, if I can get a fast pass, I'd rather not. Uh, concert tickets, people that like set up chairs and tents waiting for the iPhone to come out or for concert tickets or something like that just blows my mind. Traffic, forget about it. I will li- plan my day around when there will be no traffic on the road so I'm not stuck in traffic waiting and doing nothing. And the worst is waiting for the uncertain outcome. Right? But waiting, the worst in traffic, waiting, waiting in traffic's bad. I mean, and now that we have GPS, you can kind of, you can see the red line and you know how bad it's going to be. It used to be waiting for traffic. You didn't know if there was going to be an accident up front or if it was just something little and you didn't have any idea how long you're going to be in that traffic. When there's waiting and there's tension and you don't know the outcome, that is the absolute worst. <sighs> traffic's bad enough when there's like real adult problems that are worse than traffic. You may be waiting for, you may be waiting for God to show up with your spouse. You may have been waiting for that for a long time. Maybe you're waiting for your career to kick off. Maybe you're waiting to get into the career that you so desperately want. Maybe you're waiting in real financial hardship and you're just, we don't know how this is going to turn out. Could go one way, could go bad. We just don't know. Maybe you're waiting for escrow to close on your house and it's going up and down and you don't know if God's going to come through with it. I mean, maybe you're waiting on an MRI report to come back from the lab. Maybe you're waiting for the oncologist to call you back. That kind of waiting is the worst because it's waiting in tension and you do not know what's going to happen next. And that is really what this passage is all about. It's about waiting in the tension of an uncertain future or, or, or a dicey situation. That's what David's doing. He is waiting in the desert. He's in the desert waiting for God to come through on his promises. And in that it becomes symbolic or really at least it represents or we can all relate to 
that vibe of having to sit in the desert, to wait in the desert for God to come through. The Bible even says that about us. It says that we are in the desert. That's what wilderness means. The Judean wilderness, that's not pine trees and snow-capped mountains. That is dirt as far as you can see. That's what the Bible says we are in. We are in the wilderness of sin and death, waiting for God to come through with his promises. And if that's not bad enough, here's the worst part. We're not waiting alone. And by that, I don't mean we have friends that are waiting with us. That's the good part of it. What I mean is the devil is in the wilderness with us, constantly tempting us with shortcuts lying to us saying this is the way out of the desert right now but they are traps so what do we do well this is a picture of waiting on god and how to find the confidence to do that because god is not like people god has made promises that are absolutely sure and certain and we can know because of that that god always comes through He always comes through in the here and now and in the promises yet to come. So the big idea of this is really that in the daily struggle, the daily struggle between fear and faith that we all experience, it's always better to wait on the Lord because He always comes through. In the daily struggle between fear and faith, it's better to wait on the Lord because He always comes through. So let's Let's look at that one little part at a time. The first part is in the daily struggle between fear and faith. Uh, we have all, I am sure, been deeply saddened this week watching the awful spectacle of the Senate hearings uh, for the nomination of Justice Kavanaugh and the sexual abuse charges that have been brought against him. Now this is obviously a super dicey and hot topic to talk about. A big part of me was like, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole, but it's actually such a perfect example of what's happening in this passage, I felt like I had to. Uh, And so I'll be very careful and very respectful and as neutral as I can be. It's possible that someone is mistaken. It's possible that someone has faulty memory. Science of memory tells us that memory is not nearly as reliable as we'd like to think. It's possible, uh, especially when alcohol is involved. It's possible that someone is just mistaken, but it's probably more likely that someone is not telling the truth. And honestly, we have no idea who that is at this point. There are such high stakes involved politically on either side and the ethical ramifications are so great that someone has made the decision, most likely, that telling a lie is worth winning. Seeing everything out in front, someone has made the decision that lying or one little lie is worth getting out of the wilderness and getting what they want. It's utilitarian ethics. We call this utilitarian ethics. The end justifies the means. That is not Christian ethics. 
Uh, and listen, listen to what David is faced with here. Look at verse 3 and 4. It says, he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it seems good to you. Now think about this. David is in the desert, right? This isn't just... Um, I mean, we, we're talking so much about kingship and the greater context of this. This isn't just that David, if he kills Saul, David gets to be king. He's in the desert. I was talking with, um, with Gavin, Gavin Blair, at, at, our, at our community group, talking about the Judean desert. He's actually been to En Gedi. It's like 120 degrees in the shade. There's nothing to drink but hot water and not enough of it. There's bad food and everyone is hungry because there's not enough. There's fleas. They stink. Their clothes are dirty. They don't have the comfort of their family and their companionships. They're constantly on the run. They're afraid. They are full of anxiety. They do not know what's going to happen next. If death awaits them or more awful hardship in the desert. And we got to remember that these highlight stories in the text are the pinnacles of, of action when there's probably months and months and months of sitting in the 120 degree heat of the desert not knowing what's going to happen. Man, and, 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 and here is David, it's in the cave and all of that can be over. All of that hardship, all of that suffering, all of that pain Everything can be over. All he's got to do to make it over is kill one guy who happens to be the Lord's anointed. Who he happens to know God has put him on the throne. He happens to know he's been called to wait. What's he do? And You know, it's even worse than that. If I'm reading, reading through it, I realize there's 600 hardened, angry soldiers with him and his making that one move also takes them out of all that hardship as well and brings them into what they I'm sure they believe will be luxury and the good life forevermore can you imagine the pressure of that leadership position and he comes back with a tassel hey guys check it out they're like Give me a gun. Somebody give me a gun. (laughs) Imagine how angry they would be. The word of David persuading them is strong language. It's it's the word that says tear apart. It's almost, we would say ripped into them. He had to use very forceful language to stop them from doing what they so desperately wanted to do. All that pressure, all that pressure trying to force him to do one small evil to gain all of that good. That's what he's facing. That's what he's facing. Maybe you can relate to that. Maybe you've had experiences in your life where you were in hardship. You weren't able to pay the bills. Uh, your taxes were due. You have been waiting for your spouse forever and Mr. Charming shows up or Miss Charming shows up. They just don't happen to be Christian. Maybe you're having in the midst of a difficult marriage and you think, Pulling the ejector switch is exactly what I need. 
to make things better. Maybe you've been, you know, struggling in poverty and someone offers you a sketchy job. I mean, these are like real things. I don't think, I'm not really even just throwing those things out there, man. I mean, I'm thinking, I think I've been through all that, you know? Where you have that, you have all, even good things that you know God has promised us, all of it's writing, and all you got to do is that one sketchy thing, and it all will happen. That's what David is up against. (laughs) That's what we're up against all the time in the desert. There's the devil lying to us. Just do this, and I will give you all the kingdoms of the world. And man, I don't know about you, but almost always my first response is, let's think about this. (laughs) Let's think about why this is wise and rational and good and why this is okay to do. And my mind was like churning on that. Uh, Praise God for the spirit who restrains us. But it brings up the question. The question is, that's being presented to David and to us, is this, is an opportunity always a green light from God? Is opportunity always a green light from God? And you would be amazed. I mean, well, we shouldn't be amazed how often I say, yes! How often I am in a counseling session picking up the pieces of a destroyed relationship because someone down the line said, yes! How I'm counseling someone who's in court being sued because they said, yes! Uh, this marriage is falling apart because they said yes. Man. And the underlying theme of it so often is, is the, the, the rationalization in one way or another is some form of, well, I know that God wants me to be happy, therefore. But the reality is, the reality is this. Yes, God wants us to be happy, but more than that, God wants us to be holy. And he wants us to be holy because holiness is what builds the bulletproof kind of steadfast contentment that is able to weather the storm in the desert that we are in. And so opportunity is not always a green light. Sometimes it's a red light. Sometimes it's a yellow light. Wait. Wait. And that's what we see David doing. David's in the cave. He's looking at Saul. He knows, kill this guy. Everything's good. But he doesn't. He waits. Second part. It's better to wait on the Lord. It's better to wait on the Lord. What's the one constant theme in almost every time travel movie? Basic, basic, one of the basic dangers of almost every time travel movie or story is that when you go back in the past, you have to be super careful not to change anything in the past because it could start chain reactions that will produce an unpredictable and catastrophic future. Whether you go back and you accidentally, uh, you know, uh, meet your father and dissuade him from meeting your mother and you don't ever get born and you disappear. Or, you know, worse, you go back in time on a secret mission to kill Hitler and you kill Hitler and someone more evil and more and smarter rises in his place and the world catastrophic catastrophic 
uh, consequences. And so what David is doing here really is waiting, he's waiting on, he's not, he knows that God has given him the kingship, but he's waiting on God's timing for it. He's refusing to take that timing into his own hand and shortchange it, to red light it, to change, to do something up front that may cause catastrophic and unpredictable consequences. Think about David did not, was not consistent in this. Think about uh, David later in his life. It didn't, his sin with Bathsheba did not start with Bathsheba. It started with polygamy. One wife wasn't good enough, so he took two, and then two wives became four, and then four wives became ten concubines, and then ten concubines became, well, I can have that girl too, even though she's my best friend's wife. Uh, And then when they found out, that turned into the murder of her husband, which turned into unresolved scandal and sin and guilt and shame in his family that bled into his children, which reproduced the same sexual assault in his family and in his children, which led to his son being cast out and building resentments, which led to rebellion, which led to civil war, which led to thousands of deaths, which led to the split of the kingdom. It all started somewhere. And so listen, because we can't know that, we can't go back in the future just like we go back in the past. We don't know what we changed could alter something. What God calls us to do, this is, this is what faith means in this. Faith means trust. And by trusting God, what it means is that when we're faced with a, with, with a, a dilemma, if we're faced with something that's an opportunity, but it's caused something sketchy to get it, the faith, the work of faith is to trust God by holding our integrity and trusting Him to work it out for our good. Trusting him to work that out for our good. And that's what he does. The good news is he will. He does. Over and over again. Second reason why it's good to wait on God's timing, or better to wait on God's timing, it's more uncomfortable, this one, is this. We don't want to hear this, but the reason is, is, is this. God's got you in the desert for a reason. <laughs> God got you into that desert for a reason. He knows how to get you back out. And there's something there he has for us to sit in that tension to learn. Think about, when I was been blowing my mind, and so I've been doing this, this series and this study, especially this part of David in the wilderness, or all the Psalms lined up in the middle of the Psalms that are all related to this few years of David's life when he was sitting in 120 degrees in the shade, drinking hot water. Itchy, smelly, stinking, afraid. All of these beautiful psalms about trusting God all came out of this. God has a reason for these desert periods in our lives because he loves us. Because he's weaning us. He's detoxing us. He's strengthening us. All of it is in his good and perfect plan. So it's so much wiser for us to just hold, hold there and trust him. Look, there's a second thing that, that, that David entrusts himself to, a second thing that David waits upon that we need that it's important uh, to understand, to look at, and that's in verse 12. Look at what David says. He says, 
He says, may the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. The proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. David is waiting for God's justice. He's in an awful position. He doesn't have power in his, own, in his own hands to bring justice against Saul. And so he has to, he has to entrust God to bring justice. And that's what he does. I'm not going to retaliate against you. I'm not going to kill you myself. I'm going to trust that God will bring me justice. So look, in this here, in these Senate hearings, no matter who's telling the truth, there's two things that are, that are sure as a fallout of all this. The first one is that we know that thousands and thousands of sexual abuse survivors, mostly women, but not exclusively women, have had to relive the awful stress and terror of that experience. Um, I know some of them. I know how terrifying this week has been for them. Not just to have to relive the terror of of the experience and the memory, but to have to relive uh, not being believed or being shamed or being ridiculed. It's an awful and horrible thing. They deserve justice, and in many cases, justice isn't coming. Second thing we know also is that thousands of men and women who have been unjustly accused are reliving that horrible memory too. Think about the thousands of men, mostly African-American, but not all, who have been unjustly accused and spent years in prison until DNA evidence released them from sexual abuse charges. Think about them reliving. It's just such an awful mess. And here's this, you know, maybe, maybe look, maybe you can relate to that. Uh, I can't personally relate to the sexual abuse. I can't personally relate to unjust Uh, being unjustly accused, but there are certain things that happened in my former life that caused paralyzing memories. Things where smells or sounds or the remembrance of a place or a memory will bring me into paralyzed fear and memory. Sometimes just out of the blue, just pops into my head and all of a sudden I'm reliving all the horror of those moments so I can... I understand and can feel for them. And the sad reality of our world is that truth doesn't always win out. And there's a really good chance that truth is not going to win out in this case because there are so much, there are very powerful forces working to keep truth from winning out. But what we can know from this and what I want to encourage all of us in all of this is that, is that is that God tells us in this, David entrusting himself to God's justice, we know that God cares. Even if no one else sees you, even if no one else even knows, you can know that God knows and that God sees you, that he sees that injustice and that he deeply cares about it. 
And it's really God's promise of bringing justice at the end of the age. It's really the only thing uh, in, a, in, 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 in real parts of the world where, where real horror and, and terror and, and evil has been done. The only thing that has any hope of stopping uh, endless retaliation and endless violence is the hope that God will bring justice. It's a great quote. I didn't want to bring it in because it would take us down a rabbit trail by Miroslav Wolf that talks about his working with survivors in, 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 the, in the Balkans after the, the awful war and how much violence had been done against them and how they had so much hope in the understanding that even if in this awful and terrible world justice is never done, that God will bring justice, that God is going to make everything right, that we can wait and hope in that. So, look, I'm not saying that if this injustice has been done against you that you you shouldn't shout it from the rooftops. You should do everything you can to seek justice. But if you don't get justice, if you're ridiculed, if your name is drugged through the mud for speaking truth, then you can know that God sees you you can know that God cares for you. And you know he promises to make that right. And that's how we know it's safe to wait. We can know it's safe to wait because we worship a God who always comes through. We worship a God who always comes through. You know, we all have two different kinds of friends, right? We have, we have the friend who, they might show up, they might not. <laughs> We got the friend that always clicks interested, <laughs> but never going. <laughs> they maybe, maybe they're going to come, maybe they're not going to come, right? And you love that person because they're super fun when you do get to hang out with them, right? <laughs> but then we, have, we also have that. <laughs> we, also have, we also have that friend. We also all, hopefully, we all have that friend who we just know is going to come through. You know, if, you got, if you're in jail, you got one phone call to make to make bail, hypothetically speaking. Uh, you know, there's one friend that you would call straight up if you knew, if you wanted somebody to come and show up for you. Uh, that friend is somebody who is, who is faithful. We, uh, Lissa and I did a study in, on the fruit of the Spirit for Ladle ministry, our homeless ministry. Uh, and one of the fruit of the Spirit is faithfulness. And that's, it's defined, the Greek definition of it, the Greek word is a state of being someone in whom complete confidence can be placed. Their honesty, their dependability, their loyalty. From where I'm from, we used to call that being down for the set. That means that you can be, you trust it. It means, it means that that fruit of the Spirit is the Holy Spirit sanctifying us and the evidence of our sanctification is that we are able to strive to be the one who always shows up, the first to volunteer, the first to help, the one who's always there when your friends need you. And you're so often to do that and so consistent in it that people know what you're going to do, not, not just know what you're going to do, they, they know who you are and they trust you in that. that is, that's what uh, faithfulness means in the fruit of the Spirit. And what's so great about this is, is this. How do we know that it's safe to wait on God? It's because God is not at all like your friend who hits interested. 
God is faithful. He is so faithful. There's a special word for God's faithfulness. The word is hesed. It means covenant faithfulness. It's not only that God in his character is such that he will always come through. It's that he actually signed that oath in blood and promised us, I've made you these promises, and so that you know that I will absolutely come through on them. There's a story in the Old Testament where Abraham wasn't sure, and God came down, walked through these pieces of animals split in half, And it was God saying to Abraham and to us, I am so committed to my promises of salvation for you that I will take upon the curse of my own law. I will take the penalty that belongs to you upon myself and I will die in your place to make sure that my promises to you are certain and come through. That's a different kind of God altogether. There's a lot of versions of God that people think up. Most of them are all powerful in heaven uh, that want you to die for them. But not the true God. The true God, the beauty of his character is such that he made his love compelled him to save us to the extent that he guaranteed his promises with his own incarnation and death on our behalf. And look, because of that... We know God's going to come through. There's, there, there's small picture to this, and then there's big picture to this. There's the here and now, God promising to come through, and then there's the hereafter, God promising to come through. Look at, the, look at David in this situation, right? There he is in the cave. Saul's right there. And I'm in the, I'm in the, I'm in the palace, but... But he knows, he has enough trust to know that's not, gonna, that's not true. It will backfire. And so instead, what does he do? Probably he thinks back to where, he, oh, where God has brought him already. He was an obscure shepherd. Out of the boobs, prophet of the Israel shows up, anoints him with oil, promises him the kingship, and he's been like moving up in power. Everything he touches has been gold. <laughs> Every, every battle he faces, he wins. Everything that happens to him, God's protection and providence and care is over, over him. And he says to himself in that cave, I do not have to take this into my own hands. I can trust because what God has done in the past, that he's going to carry through and promise and come through on the promises that he's made for me to be king, to get out this desert. Get some cold water. Man, I hate hot water in the heat. It's the worst. The living water is cold. It's refreshing. And look at what happens. This is, this is crazy what happens. God changes Saul's heart so that he repents, apologizes. And then, if that's not enough... He reassures David of God's promises from the mouth of his own enemy. Bang! How about that? That's power. Didn't last, but it gets David out, saves David in that cave. That wasn't, I mean, come on. That was God changing Saul's heart to save David, his anointed. 
crazy, unexpected ways. And we can know that God will come through for us in these crazy, unexpected ways too. We just hold it, hold it, hold it. Rest in his goodness, rest in his promises, and know that he's going to do some crazy stuff and come through for us. Stuff we don't even understand or wouldn't even imagine at this point in time. That's a small picture, right? But there's big picture too. In the Old Testament, all through the Psalms, all through the prophets, this constant theme was looking back to the Exodus. And all they said was, because God was so faithful to save us from the slavery of Egypt, we know and can know that God's going to save us in the future. God has saved us in the past. We know he's going to save us in the future. Even in the, in the prophets, in the Psalms, that language, that Exodus language starts to slowly change over the centuries from God's exodus from Egypt to God's future exodus yet to come. They were looking forward to that. And that's what they were hoping in. That's what they were placing their trust in. Because God was so faithful in the past in these big events, we know he's going to come through on his promises to send the Savior to save us. And what happened? Did he send the Savior? He sure did. That's not guesswork for us. We got the history of it. The recorded history of the gospel that God incarnated. He became a man. He lived among us. He died on a cross to pay for our sins. Not just as a display of his intense love for us, uh, but as a display of his wisdom to the entire creation and the, and the heavenly and, and, the, and the authorities in heaven that he is almighty, all-wise, all-powerful God. He came through with that. We can look now, not just at the Exodus, but we can look at the spiritual Exodus of the gospel and know that we are saved in that. That God has us in that and he is not going to let you go. Think about it. All that he did. All of that. All that he did to get you, hold you, bring you into life and hold you tight. He's not going to let you go. My friend Vince Larson's a pastor at New City Church put this post up this week, which is so great. He said, if Jesus wouldn't abandon you on the cross when hell was crushing down on him, do you think that you're having a bad week is going to do it? <laughs> Serious. And we get so wrapped up, get so wrapped up in the week, we can forget the last 10,000 years of redemptive history. Don't look at the week. Look at all of God's faithfulness in the past. He promises to save us, to bring us out of this desert. There's still promises left. Big picture promises. The return of Jesus the translation of our bodies into bodies of spiritual power and glory. Washed and cleansed with, from all of the filth of this world. And brought into a beauty and a peace where there's no more hardship, no more unbearable heat, no more sexual abuse, no more unjust accusations. No more tears. Do you believe it? 
Do you actually believe that someday you're going to be a spirit being with so much power that you would absolutely freak yourself out right now? It's true. And how do we know that? Because we have thousands of years of record of God always coming through. We know he's going to come through on the end. Amen? So wait. Wait for him because God has come through in the past. We can know that God will come through in the future. So that in the daily struggle between fear and faith, we can wait on the Lord because we know that he always comes through. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for your word and the encouragement it is to us. You are God who always comes through. You are God who's displayed to us your crazy power in all things. And you're a God who's told us that that power is at work for our good. So we got nothing to fear. Oh, but we are fearful, Lord. And you know that. And you love us and care for us in our fear and anxiety. Lord, help us. Help us to rest in your bigness. So that in our smallness we can feel safe. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.